0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John
1: Teeter. I'm John Teter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I've had the fortunate pleasure of being successful. I killed a beautiful buck here, and my son also killed a nice doe. So I'll share those stories in another podcast and I'll talk about you know my technical approach to breaking down a particular deer during the rut and finding success. And I think some of these aftermath stories will get you thinking about what you can do better for next year. I also want to mention that I have my master class coming up. Everything's on my website. It's uh, in July. All the information is on there. You can reach out and contact me. Uh, there's a contact page. I did some upgrades to my website. You can take a look at some of the stuff that's on there. Uh, please get in touch with me if you want to be in the masterclass. I've gotten a ton of inquiries on it. I want to make sure that it, you know it's it's an opportunity for you to learn and to get a hands-on in the field approach to seeing how I manage a property. It's not me coming and consulting. It's me actually showing you the improvements that have been made and this is, this is advanced level stuff. I'm going to teach you things that you've never heard before. Uh, This will not be, you know, something similar to what maybe you've gone on a a master class, maybe to Don Higgins or Tony LaPrette. This this is much different from that. This is, this is very in-depth and I want people to recognize the level of detail that's required uh, to make these hard hunting areas easier. And that's, that's what I'm, I'm I'm going to teach in that, that master's class. So you know, please participate. You will get to meet some of my clients in that. It'll be a good, I guess, culmination of learning uh, for a group of people. So exciting event! Uh, please get a hold of me, and uh, I'm here to talk to my next guest. I have not had him on the podcast before. I've been on his podcast. Hey, Dan, are you on the line? Yes, sir. All right. So, if anybody doesn't know Dan Johnson, uh, he's a pretty popular guy. He runs the <laughs> network that uh, my podcast is is on, and I appreciate you know him having me on the network. You know, you've been successful, Dan, and uh, you just killed yesterday, and I want to hear a little bit about that. I know it's probably emotional for you. It's a lot of time invested, you executed, and um, you probably feel pretty good today.
0: Yeah, I feel really good today. Um, but, you know, you made it sound like it was easy right there. <laughs> and as everybody knows, like, uh, especially if you follow me, it was not easy. Um, I had my number one target buck at 19 yards and I blew a chip shot. I mean, a slam dunk in your face, no obstructions, nothing wrong. I blew it straight up buck fever. Right. And so that had me feeling the lowest of the lows to the point where I took a break from the rut and I ended up going home and spending some time with my kids, basically shaking that one off. And, uh, then I got back on my horse and uh, started at it again, going through the process of trying to locate and kill a big deer. And and last night it happened.
1: I actually watched your Instagram live kind of stuff and uh, yeah. watched watched it after we talked. I, I didn't. I knew you were hunting. Did uh, a factor of anything else kind of come into play? Do you think there was they're harvesting corn? I think in your area did, did anything yeah. like play into your 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 hand there?
0: So that all the deer were moving through the property to go to that standing corn. They were combining it. So that meant that that was not an option that night. And so I said, if there's any night for me to go in and be really intrusive into this property and, and try to sneak in there and get the job done, it would be on a night like this where the, the movement isn't going to be east-west. It's going to probably be more north-south because they're not going to hit that that food source. They're probably going to go to a different food source. And so luckily it, it it paid off. But as far as what put me in that stand, there's a variety of reasons, but one of the contributing factors was uh, they were harvesting that corn. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's a time and place and, and knowledge thing. And I think so yeah. for some of you that have standing corn that are experiencing, you know, the, the impact of corn, right? Corn ends up being, you know, an element of cover, right? It's a food source and cover, particularly this time of year as we transition, as the months get colder. It's, it's a resource, right? And that resource, you know, can be uh, detrimental to your hunting locations, at least your traditional hunting locations. So it sounds yep. like you took that in consideration and it kind of played your hand.
0: Yeah, yeah, so usually what ha- what happens, these deer are, it's a it's a very long and narrow property north-south, and imagine it being a rectangle, and one-third of the furthest west piece, the, the property runs north-south, is all like Osage orange trees, honey locusts, just overgrown cattle pasture, multiflower flower rows, you know, the stuff that you probably try to remove from the properties, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but, it, but it held, it was holding really good deer and, uh, good numbers. And so it was hard. It's hard for me to get in there, especially on, uh, um, there, it, it holds so many deer. It just, you go, you just take a couple steps in and something's watching you. Something's watching you. Something, something's seeing you. And these does that they, they're, they don't take anything lightly. Right? They will blow and blow and blow and try to get downwind of you until they figure you out, and then they'll run away. Um, and so it, it took me a really good – it took me almost a week to figure this property out, where they like to hang out, where I feel like there's a dead zone, and then I use that dead zone to, to access uh, certain pinch points or terrain features that I find uh, would be – good for deer putting a tree stand in or a yeah. saddle.
1: Yeah. And I think that flexibility that a lot of us sometimes don't, you know, think about. So this morning I woke up and, you know, I'm tagged out at least buck wise and, and we're starting to target some does here locally. I, I was scouting this morning and I'm um, scouting for gun season. I hung a double set for me and my son for opener, which is coming up this weekend and uh which is exciting uh, it's exciting for me. I, I showed him the set. I think, you know, he's he's pretty excited. I had a couple bucks walk past me while I was hanging the set, and that's, you know, I've stayed out of a couple of these core areas. And it's, again, it's always time and place, but it's kind of thinking through, you know, what's the environment going to be in that time, you know, where I'm playing off pressure or I'm playing off, you know, in this case, you know, something harvesting you know, the, the, the local crop, et cetera. I mean, these things are all meaningful in your overarching strategy. So I think, I think it's being smart, but it's being tactical. And I want to get into the series here. So we've had this long technical, you know, hunting series. Uh, It's been multiple versions. You know, I did one on wind and we've had a, a rut one come out and, and just, you know, big woods hunting, all sorts of things. I want to talk about comfort.
0: And okay. this hey, is- John, hey, yeah. John, yeah. can I hijack your show for one mo- no, one minute?
1: Go ahead. Go can ahead. I do it,
0: please? I, so I'm sitting in this tree, right? And I'm saying to myself, I mean, I'm sitting in a really big overgrown Osage Orange tree. And I'm looking at all these storm trees, all these locusts. I think they're called black locusts, right? Yep. Yep. And so I'm just like, Jesus, man, this, this is just a mess in here. But the deer love it. And so I actually you popped into my head when I was when I was setting this stand up or this this location up and I was saying to myself if this was my property how what would I do to this area this little pinch point that's covered in in black locust and and osage orange trees knowing that the deer already moved through it they already love it but these are I don't know what the proper term is from a habitat standpoint, but they're just not ideal uh, species of trees yeah. to, to be on a property. Um, and I, and so you popped into my head, and my question to you is, what what would you do as a habitat specialist in a scenario like that?
1: Yeah, so black locust is, um, you know, depending on the species of tree, right, we, we teach in this podcast ecological function. So if it provides some benefit to your landscape, assess what that is. So yeah. black locust is a, is a good firewood tree. And that's predominantly how I look at that particular species and any of the shrub component that comes with that, whether it's honeysuckle, multi-furrow rose, whatever the case may mm-hmm. be, those are called interfering plants. So in the landscape, it's all an interference. The next piece of this is looking at its value. And so from a value standpoint, um, I look at, you know, what is it doing for my, for my cover? You know, in, in this case, we'd say it's got good cover, cover element to it. So, it's okay leaving components of that across the landscape because the worst thing you can do is eradicate, you know, something that is a value and unless you have something that's of more value. And so we talk about replacement species. So, you know, we, we, you could look like you could look at different species that you would want to plant in those areas. But if it's just chalk full of, you know, those type of tree species and shrubs, you're going to have to remove it in sections. So it's called, um, we call it like incrementally phased um, eradication. So mm. what we'll do is we'll take sections of that. So we might leave the perimeter and then interior that, because it gives you that good shielding effect, that, that kind of segregation that you need. Interior that, you start your process of removing. And then you remove in pockets. And so it's just like it's uh, taking one bite of the elephant at a time. And mm. once you get to the point where you're able to kind of introduce plants that have cover and food as one component... then you have a benefit to your uh, ecology or wildlife. So that is the approach to dealing with that circumstance where you don't want to get rid of everything. You want to take incremental steps. And we're going to talk in the podcast this year about how to how to manage like this situation like you're talking about. Because a lot of properties I go on, you know, it's like, man, the cover values, the roof. Why the hell would I get rid of it? And to your point, you know, if you get rid of it in phases, it doesn't hurt you as much. So that's that's the tactic.
0: Gotcha. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. You you can have your show back.
1: Okay. All right. So we're, we're going to, so we're going to go and we're going to start talking about comfort hunting. And what that means to me is having the right gear. And Dan does a lot of gear podcasts. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to talk about this. And I want to talk about clothing. And I think clothing yep. would be probably the foundational piece of having you know comfort and you know there, there's more than just clothing right there's boots there's tree stands there's mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff but I want to start with clothing so Dan I want to talk about your process to look at clothing you know what gear you're using why you're using it um, what are the options you think are available to people you know I want you to push people in a direction. And obviously, this is latitude contingent, right? So if you're going to go near the northern latitudes, right, you're going to focus on a little bit colder climate stuff. And then obviously, southern latitudes, you're going to pick, you know, obviously, uh, different clothing options. So think about, obviously, the temperate piece of this. So, Dan, roll.
0: All right. So for me, 100% of all of my clothing to maintain comfort, there's two things that I think about. One, it, well, the first one is always base layers. Base layers are the foundation of any um, hunting clothing or camo. And the reason I say that is because it's the it's the part of your your gear set that touches your skin, your next to skin. And for me, it has to be breathable because I I sweat. Um, it ha- it has to be uh, have good warmth. I'm a huge fan of merino wool. This, this entire season, because it hasn't been too terribly cold yet, uh, I've, I've worn some synthetics, uh, some blends, but they have to be moisture-wicking, they have to dry fast, they have to have a warming component, and they have to be somewhat flexible uh, as far as I, – I, like, I personally like an athletic-type fit, something that's kind of snug, that fits like a T-shirt, but not like compression If that makes sense. Yes. And so that's where, that's where it really starts for me uh, on the ultimate comfort is the base layers. The second thing as far as clothing comfort is what kind of hunter am I? Okay. And so depending on the scenario, it will dictate, you know, you take that, like you said, North, North or South temperature, climate, all that plays a, a huge role in how you dress. But for me, it's about accessing my hunting location, right? Am I going to be able to take a two-track, uh, you know, drive a side-by-side in and walk a hundred yards, or am I going to have to go a mile deep on a hike on a like some kind of public land mobile setup? And so that tells me how I need to layer my my clothing. And so there are times when I will bring my layers in with me. And then there's other, other times where I will wear almost everything. Most of the time I, I wear my uh, uh, my heavy pants, my insulation layer, uh, but then I'll put on my heavy jacket while when I get to the stand to prevent sweating so bad. And so really for me it's all about layering and it's all about um, how I'm accessing my hunting location.
1: Yeah, Dan. I think that makes sense. I think the basic piece of this, and it's funny, we have a similar comfort feel. Like, and it's it's pertinent to you. Some people like very tight compression clothing, and then that whole portability piece of it's another thing. Just to add to your point, you know, can yep. I take my clothing if I have a long walk? Can I take my clothing from point A to point B? And yep. you know, there's an added weight and component of that. Like, I, I want people to laugh at me. So, I have an area. So I don't have an e-bike or anything like that. I have an electric scooter that's my kids, okay? Yep. Okay. And I do hang and hunt on a property about a mile from me. So I take this electric scooter, and I take – it's pink, so you can even laugh at me more. I don't care. Yep. I I don't (laughs) (laughs) – and uh, I I take my – I I usually wear my boxer shorts and a T-shirt. And it depends on the time of year. Um, and I'll go to this location. I'll have everything on a pack. Sometimes I'll have my hanging hunt stand. Sometimes I'll have it, you know, stand already hung. And I like, you know, that piece of it where I'm thinking through the the cooling aspect of it. When I go drive anywhere in the mornings, I have my air conditioning on in my car. I want to be cold when I get to my spot, yep. uh, depending on my, my, uh, my distance that I have to travel. One of the things I do with my feet, Dan, is um, I clean my feet. I take showers. I mean, the the ridiculousness that goes into my routine. But the other piece of it is like just foot care, just overall foot care and Mm -hmm. um, trying not to sweat, uh, you know, at my feet and cold feet, you know, cold hunt. And so I think thinking about each aspect, you know, whether it's the type of socks that you're wearing, like I wear Coolmax socks, you know, I put deodorant on my feet, right? I have, uh, I I wear a particular set of uh, sandals and you know, again, when I'm going to that location, you know, I don't want to have to wear some of my clothing so I can, you know, kind of keep that, that cooling, you know, type status. I'm not, I'm not sweating. Um, the yep. other piece of it is wind is a factor in this too, Dan. Like if it's, it's a not windy day and you don't have anything like, you know, w- wicking a, a sens- essentially some of that the heat off your body, you know, you're, you're going to run yourself into a, a little bit of a, a situation. So Absolutely. I, I think that plays all into the decision of the type of gear that you have what gear you wear to your stand and then how you layer it. And I think that's, I think a lot of people don't pay attention to that or struggle with, you know, the right gear to choose. And I think it's obviously time of your contingent and, you know, related temperature and your latitude, et cetera. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that you can, you know, especially if the, if the temperature is nice outside and for the most part, let's just use early October timeframe where, you know, it could be really hot outside You can get away with jeans and T-shirt or, you know, some Walmart camo and things like that and be just fine. But what we really find is that when you really want to be in the woods, the weather is not always fun to be in, whether it's extremely cold or it's time of year. And there's like uh, the, the last six or seven days here in Iowa, it's been 65 degrees a high of 65 degrees. That's not fun during the rut. Um, and then we have these swings where the mornings are in the high 20s, low 30s, frost on the ground, the highs get to the 65s. And then it and once that sun goes behind the, the hillside, it drops down to 40 almost immediately.
1: So having the ability to be flexible in the woods yes. uh, is important. And I want to know what gear that you use specifically to adapt to these warm, cold spells? And like you talked about a 20-degree variance, what's the gear that you're using in the field right now that that seems to work well for you?
0: Okay, you mentioned boots, so that's a good place to start. I have given up on rubber boots. I no longer longer wear rubber boots. I feel like my personal point of view on this is that they actually – cause your feet to become colder because once that rubber gets cold on, on that, uh, on those, in those boots, it's game over. I don't care how much insulation it it has. I don't care what kind of socks you're wearing unless you have like a, um, a battery powered heat source in it. I have never found luck with those, um, with those types of boots. Plus they're clunky and they make climbing up a set of sticks Very hard to do, especially on some of those bigger, thicker models. Now, here's what I've changed to. I wear one pair, and the brand name is Altera Alpaca. They're alpaca socks. And so uh, Altera, they make a a sock called the Prevail, and I wear that with a pair of crispy hiking boots, no matter what the temperature is. Um, and that keeps my, that, that ricks the moisture away. It's a hiking boot. They're uninsulated and I'll wear those no matter what. The trick that I use is when my feet do get cold, I will throw a pair of Arctic shield boot covers over top of those hiking boots. And it does a very good job of keeping the feet, keeping the feet warm. If it's super cold, and we're talking maybe late season, same pair of socks, same pair of boots, but I'll take some hand warmers, and I'll put them in the, like a couple hand warmers, and I'll put them in the the boot cover, and it just keeps the inside of your, you know, it just keeps the inside of that nice and toasty. That cold air is not getting to your boot, and your feet are very comfortable. I mean, I've hunted all the way down into, like, negative 20s with that setup.
1: Yeah, and I, I think this is interesting because we all have different things. and I, So I'm going to have my two cents into it. So yeah. I recommend to all my clients not to go the route that Dan's going. Now, I don't disagree with Dan, and I'm actually thinking about making some changes to my own regime, but I'm so focused on boot management, and I want you guys to hunt short periods of time. So, you know, the all-day-sit thing and, and maintaining this kind of static state with your temperature and all that stuff is very critical. But for me personally, Dan, like, I am so observant and concerned with reducing the amount of scent in any capacity whatsoever, so the breathability in my my clothing and and my my boots particularly i am very conscious of, so I agree with you, but I also disagree with you at some point. i want to tell mm-hmm. you one other crazy thing so do you remember what? i don't know if you remember this or not so years ago Bill Winkie came out with this uh this suit and it was like mm-hmm. uh it was like a <laughs> uh, he sold at Cabela's and it's almost like a, uh, boy in the bubble kind of suit. And yep. this is a prime example of where the, the rubber or a suit like this will kill you. So I did recently an all day sit, and I went into a very difficult area to hunt, to kill my target deer. And I had this Bill Winky suit on and he did an excellent job designing this. And, uh, Basically, what it, it's like, it's it's kind of like a boy in a bubble, and it's like a plastic bag, essentially, but it's it's quiet, it's portable, and it's uh, a one-piece you know, overall kind of setup. And when I took that suit off, the volume of moisture interior to that, so like very little air escapes, I have it zipped up. You can only wear it on super cold days. Like it's got to be like 20, 25, kind of in that range. The amount of moisture in there that stayed in there and then it created this kind of like shell of coldness right nothing was wicking away the moisture was close to my body it was amazing how cold I got fast and so to Dan's point I agree a thousand percent but if you're hunting short windows you know short windows of time and you're kind of managing some of the things like I suggested is running your air conditioner on your feet as you go to your stand etc you're trying to stay cool you might be able to last as long but to Dan's point I think the you said, the heater are they the heater? What are the name of the the footsies that you use?
0: Uh, there, it's a boot cover called Arctic Shield.
1: Arctic Shield. Yeah, yep. I think that's an excellent option for people. I think it's something that people probably overlook. Um, we had yep. a we had a guy on here that um, out of Michigan hunts way up north, and you know he talked about his Iwam suit and the heater body suit. Right there's options. Yep. If those are think they're fantastic options for people yep. that that want something. You could they're breathable. They keep you warm. You can dress light. You can throw it over, and you're kind of good to go. So I think, you know, if you're okay with that maneuverability piece of it, I think those are are good options for you as well. So with those bootsies or footsies, I'm going to call them footsies, do you feel like that takes away from your comfort level, at least when it comes to moving in the stand? Does it make you feel odd just, you know, just moving around a tree stand, for example, or maybe in your saddle? Nope.
0: Nope. Okay. I, I, I don't have a problem with them. I tie them. I zip them up, I uh, squeeze them down real tight, and, yeah, it has a bigger footprint than my actual boot. But when you're sitting, you're just sitting there, you're swinging from a saddle, there's no, I I don't think there's anything, I guess, negative that I would say about it.
1: So I want to get to your base layer choices, how you select those, and what currently are you wearing, and what do you think works well?
0: Yeah, so, uh, I'll just kind of get right into currently um, Huntworth, okay? And so here's, here is, here is and, and I've tried everything. I've had Kuyu. I've had Sitka. I've had First Light. I've had, you know, the, the hunting industry, it seems like there's a new camel pattern, or not camel pattern, but a brand, a hunting gear uh, company that comes out every every couple months. And I've, I've tested out quite a few of those. And then for a while what I did was I stepped away from anything hunting industry related and I went to like L.L. Bean and I went, uh, you know, some of these outdoor brands but that are not hunting related. Yep. And so I really curated a list, uh, uh, a thing, uh, like a, a setup with bits and pieces from every for for everything and then i ran into huntworth and uh, i do work with them so take that take everything i'm going to say with a grain of salt but one thing i have found about huntworth is that some of the elite brands like the sitkas the uh the first lights the Kuyus, obviously very expensive and they have a garment for every type of scenario If it is this temperature and you're in this environment, they have a piece for that. Okay. What I like about Huntworth's uh, setup is that they have, I feel like their layering system, the the clothing that they have for uh, a Midwestern, East Coast, box blind, you know, run and gun on public. Tree, you know, tree hunting, saddle hunting, you know what, uh, uh, tree stand hunting, hunter. They offer one of the best selections of options for for that as well. And what I mean by that is the base layers They have they have a base layer. They have uh, hot and cold, basically a, a pant that's hot or for hot weather, a pant that's cold for cold weather, and then the same with the tops. And I feel like they they offer a like a lineup where you can pick three or four things and and be good the whole year round.
1: I like that, and I'm on their website now looking at what they have to offer. And I agree. I think the other piece of this is, you know, how much clothing do you need, how often do you hunt. Right. Those are factors into, you know, what touches your skin. Anything that touches my skin gets washed. It goes through a process. Anything that doesn't touch my skin, it goes through a different process. So it depends on, you know, how well you're managing your clothing. And, you know, if you're in this routine of anything that touches my skin and needs to be washed, right, you're going to need multiples of different clothing types. So, like, I typically wear, I had this one, and I just found, they don't make them anymore, but there's a company called Poithel and i don't know if the owner used to be related to Saint Locke. i can't remember the story there but they had this rut 2.0 pant and it is the most comfortable pant i have ever worn in my life and i i found yeah. another one recently i've got two of them and i run it sick I run, I run these three pants and either one run one with the base layer and the pant base layer pant then exterior it just depends on the temperature but those pants that i i have I have three of them and it's a game changer for me because I can wear, in some cases, I can just wear the pant. I can wear a layer under the pant. And so it's, you're finding these key pieces that you kind of like that are affordable. So I bought that used piece for like, I think it was $60. And I'm always looking for a discount. I'm always looking for something on sale in my area, like places like Marshall's, any of the ski places that are going out of business, you know, any, any end of year sale, you know, some of the base layers you can find really good, you know, it doesn't have to be camouflaged to Dan's point. Um, yeah. The other piece of it is, you know, finding gear that, that you feel like will last the hands of time. So I've hunted the most I've ever hunted this year, Dan. It's probably been, I, I think, 16 times. I think that's my number. I, I usually yeah. hunt about five times a year. I hunted 16 times so far. I've been hunting like crazy. And uh, in that, I've had to go through kind of this this plethora of, like, thinking through my system, right? I've got two boot dryers going. I run nine pairs of boots. Like, I have this whole, like, crazy process to what I'm doing you know, on top of all the management and everything else that goes on with the hunting. And it's the gear that has to last the washes, that has to be comfortable during the day. I'm taking multiple showers, right? It has to be portable and light. I think lightweight stuff is probably the more important piece of this entire equation. So in the next layer of this, if we're getting out of the base layers, a mid layer or an exterior layer, what do you feel like how meaningful is that like puffies and, you know, clothing like that? What do you, what do you, how does it matter to you? Um, is that an important thing to your kind of your, your setup?
0: Yeah. So remind me, I have a couple thoughts. thoughts. <Like, laughs> I'm laughing here because you, when it comes to scent, me and you are completely opposite.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: and, and so I want to talk about that uh, at the end of this episode, but um, I am a huge fan of insulation layers, uh, and I like big Western th- types of puffy jackets as my insulation layer. And so there's times when I will throw just a base layer on, and then I'll take my puffy jacket uh, over top of that, and then I just put a shell over top of that, like a, some kind of uh, windbreaker. Uh, and, you know, Huntworth offers that. But I, uh, I have a Eddie Bauer it's an actual, it's not, it's just an Eddie Bauer. Yep. I got it. I got it at a um, an Eddie Bauer store. It was on a clearance rack. It's a puffy jacket and it, it holds the heat very well. And so that is, and a lot of people are concerned. Oh, doesn't that make too much noise? I'm like, man, do you, do you realize how much noise it would take for, and I know this is different in different parts. Like some deer don't mess around. I hunt in Iowa. I hunt in, <laughs> you know, I hunt in um, uh, out, out west as well. But do you know how actual how much noise it takes to, to spook a whitetail? Like I, I feel like some of these companies over-exaggerate how important being quiet it, at their garments have to be because last year I was wearing this puffy when I shot my buck I was actually wearing my puffy jacket that's it and I drew back there' was no problems there yeah and, and so and so the, the whole quiet thing I think it really is blown out of proportion it's not like you're you're wearing a, a chip bag you know potato chip bag as your outer layer right, right. crack crack you know like right. that but but um. But, yeah, I'm a huge fan of puffy jackets to, to hold the heat.
1: I'm with you on the puffy jackets, Dan. And uh, to your point, it's funny. I have uh, Patagonia, uh, Eastern Mountain Sports, and Eddie Bauer uh, puffy mm-hmm. jackets. And just what I did was try to find them on sale. And uh, Yeah you know, and you, Eddie Bauer is a good example. You go to Eddie Bauer and if you're worried about quietness, you can kind of feel the exterior and, and just see the noise that they create. Some of these other brands that are not hunting, you know, specific, you know, these, these light puffies are packable. You can fold them basically into a small bundle. You know, I think that's a game changer. And I think, you know, I have bottoms. The I haven't, I don't have a pair of bottoms that are quiet, uh, but I do have bottoms, you know, I don't even want to talk about the brands because I don't think the brands really matter. Uh, I think yeah. it's more along the lines of what you feel is comfortable to you. And yeah. if it's, if it meets kind of this quota and like you said earlier, like I'm not like Velcro man out there, right? It's not making right. a whole host of nose. And a lot of times, just covered with a shell and maybe that shell has an interior layer. That's, that's uh fleece for example, or micro fleece. And that's going to, you know, that's going to add to that, you know, quiet ability aspect of it. But to your point, I'm not super worried about that stuff. There's more creaks and dings and, you know, things that happen with your stand setups that you have to be cautious of that are much more annoying and, you know, would trigger an an alarm for for deer. I, I don't think it's as much as the clothing. Although I will admit Velcro, you know, I'm looking for really solid zippers on things. Oh, yeah. You know, those things I think, you know, I don't want Velcro. I like buttons and I like zippers, really like zippers. And I want pockets in certain places. I really like a chest pocket for my... For my rangefinder, there's there's certain aspects of like the gear that has to kind of meet like my movement. So in the world of design, they call that human factors analysis. Mm-hmm. So I want a human factor component of it. I think has done it. Just honestly, I'll just say this right off the bat: that whole like des- side zip design—that's that's that's absurd. Uh, that doesn't make any any sense to me. Even if there's a benefit to it, you know, some of these design features you know, I have Sika gear, but, and I'm not trying to down the company. I'm just saying like, there's elements of this clothing that maybe meet what you think is appropriate or not. And I feel like you've got to try a lot of stuff on. And that's, I think people struggle because they don't, they don't get a chance to go to a Huntworth store or they don't get a chance to go to the, the Sika outlet in Montana. Um, you know, they're stuck in, you know, their house in Missouri, right? And so they don't get to experience some of these things to, to try on all this gear. So I think people, you know, struggle with what gear to pick and why. And, Again, if you have an outlet store a place to go, I, I think it's an opportune thing. And obviously, your probably friends and family you know, use certain gear types, so you get to experiment and listen to them. So I, I don't think there's one brand that does better than others. I just think an expense is the big piece of this. And if you're going through clothing, like, left and right, like... I do a lot of deer drives. Uh, traditionally, when I was a kid, I want to get back into that. I've done a little bit more of that with my buddies recently. you got to have the right clothing for that. And that's, that's not the clothing that I'm wearing when I'm sitting in the woods, right? I'm sitting in my tree stand. That's, that's a different outfit. So it's kind right. of meeting the scenario with the right clothing. Right. All right, let's go to your right. outers, Dan. I want to talk about, you know, what do you like for exterior kind of layers and, and what seems to fit the need for you for whitetail hunting? Yeah.
0: All right, so at the beginning of the uh, podcast, I talked about locust. I talk about multi-flower rose. I talk about, um, like, beggar's lice, cockaburs, all that stuff. I am not a huge fan of having my pants be fleece. And really... The, there's a pair of, you know, some of the Huntworth. They have that uh, the knee and it goes halfway down the shin. It's like, uh, man, it's it's real rigid. It's it's tough. It's like it's it's not denim. I, I, I'm blanking on what the actual uh, fat fabric that is called, but it's it's like uh, it's not like it's kind of like plasticky. Mm, okay. But but it's flexible. It's quiet, and it does not pick up. It doesn't let the thorns through. It doesn't pick up that much beggar's lice or cockroaches, and so it's a real rigid pant. It's called the Durham pant, and so that's a light. That's a lightweight pant. So I I will change my base layer to wear that pant longer if I have to. So I will increase my. Uh, my base layer from a lightweight base layer to a heavyweight base layer just so i can stick with that pant longer however when it's cold out then i'll then i'll bring in my uh, my my it's kind of like a fleece it's a it's a very quiet fabric uh what do they call that brushed something something like brushed fleece fleece or something like sure, that sure but those pants also have knee covers on them as well in some of the high traction areas like the knees and the butt and things like that. And so I really like that design because of like, I have a pair of Sitka pants. That's probably still standing up when I threw it in the corner, I had so much, so much (laughs) beggar slice on it. And I, I I didn't even take the time to, it was like at the time it was like a $200 pair of pants. I just threw it in the corner. I'm like, I'm not even going to attempt to try to get all these off. And yeah, and so there goes that pair of pants, right? Right. Um, and so from there on out, it's been like Carhartts, Dickies. Uh, there's a brand that I really like call, called Arborware. It's a, uh, it's like a, a Dickie Carhart khaki material that's uh, real heavy duty, and uh, and I really like to wear those. Now here's the downfall: they're durable, they're hardy. They are not breathable. And when they get wet, they stay wet for a long period of time. Right. So, but I'm not wearing that stuff in rain. I'm not wearing that stuff in, like, sometimes I'll wear gaiters if the uh, ground is really wet. But for the most part, I'm wearing that when I know I'm not going to get wet.
1: I, I like so, I like that, and the Arborware stuff is great. And I think a lot of people, and in my field of working on properties, they make some of the best uh, clothing you can you can buy really for for the infield type stuff. So, uh, shout out to that company, Dan.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and um, and then the 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 tops. It just depends on how cold it's going to get. I carry my my outer shell jacket is always carried in. I never wear it in. It's either in my pack or strapped to my pack. And then I will get to my stand. I will almost get to the point where I'm cold, but I'll be dry. And then I throw it on. And sometimes that could be an hour into the hunt before before I throw it on. And so um, I am not a, a huge believer. Like I think camel plays its part in certain scenarios, but I feel like I've gotten away more wearing solid colors in the past than any type of specific camo patterns per se now most of hunt wear stuff they have i think three different camo options to choose from but for the most part i i don't think that the actual camo pattern plays a role as long as you're you're sitting still
1: yeah yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I think some of the disruption camo that's come out over the years, the camo, which is, you know, based on military mm-hmm. application and studies, I think they're going to fine-tune that for, you know, I think you'll see some changes over the next few years. I'd like to do a podcast on deer eyesight and, and things of that mm-hmm. nature. But to your point, I think movement is, is a critical element of that. Right. All right. right. So I want to talk about rain and snow. And I want to know, I'll just briefly explain what I use. And I am going to be brand-specific because I, I like this this uh, this outerwear, uh, I think I have some Sika dew point jacket and pants. Absolutely love that. That's been uh, a staple in you know my hunting. I've been able, I've hunted uh, in the rain. I've killed deer in the rain. Particularly my bow, which you know to put yourself in those positions, you know, you're, giving, you're giving up some things. But yeah, you got to have the good gear, and you got to be able to sit and survive. I hate getting cold, and I hate getting wet. Right, and those are the yeah. two things that I try to stay away from. For you specifically. You know, what have you used to combat rain? What are some of your go-tos? And, I mean, you do haunt the rain, right?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> I, hon- honestly, if it's raining outside, I mean, now, a light sprinkle, yes. Yeah. If I look at the radar and I'm going to go out in a light sprinkle and uh, and sit there for a couple hours while it passes through, Yeah. But I am not the kind of person who sits in a downpour waiting for a deer to come by. I just, I don't know why. I just don't do it. I've never had luck doing it. I've never had, like, you know, I've never been that good. Because what happens, like, when you're deer hunting? Somebody has some kind of experience where it's like, oh, my God, I saw five different bucks, and it was pouring down rain. Well, hell, that's going to lead them to want to sit in those types of conditions. I had the opposite experience. I did not have any type of, uh, success hunting in rain. And so I'm not gonna sit in the rain. And so therefore I don't, I mean, I have rain gear, but I don't ever wear it.
1: Yeah. I I think that's, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I, I used to have the opinion, uh, that, you know, and again, it's circumstantial. Like if I have the opportunity to kill a deer, and it's in the conditions that would be, you know, not hospitable to uh, even bow hunting. But you mm-hmm. have an opportunity. Sometimes I'll take the chance. If they intercept this high and I think I'm going to kill that deer, I'll go after them. I think the other piece of it is building a system of clothing around the conditions. And I think, you know, being focused on that, being light, being portable, I'm thinking about my hunt this week. So I have uh, a 600-foot elevation change from where I'm starting to where I have to be to, to take my son and so I preset the stands, right, et cetera, you know, I want to be light, I want to be able to get in there, and I don't want him, you know, getting too sweaty, wet, whatever the case may be, it's going to rain the opening day, so I'm thinking through each aspect of the hunt, and I want him to be enjoyed, you know, I want him to enjoy the experience, and, and be comforted, but we got, you know, a 600 foot elevation to change to go through, and we got to switch back trails, right, it's a long hike, and I wonder, you know, what that experience is going to be like for him, so You know, thinking through these aspects of your hunt and realizing you've got to have the right gear. So what I'll do is I'll pack an extra gear in my pack for him. I'll make sure that he's as light as possible. I mean, I've been in the worst, the worst, the worst, right? I can withstand almost anything until I'm, I'm, you know, near death. So I feel like in his instance, I got to give him the comfort factor. Whatever you need of short jaunts to a location, and I'm not suggesting walk through an entire property, go miles in, right? I'm just saying in that circumstance, but if you can make it easy on yourself, you need to do it. And if it's like, I don't want to hunt in the rain because the conditions don't really provide the best opportunity to harvest deer, totally justifiable. So I just want to kind of put that out there for people. I like that gear also in really, really wet, uh, snowy conditions as well. So I, we get a ton of snow 100 inches a year in my area. So constantly dealing with snow, cold temperatures, it's really important having the right gear, and it's being able to navigate through that snow as well. Sometimes snow up to your waist makes the hunting pretty difficult. So you've got to be more conscious of of the clothing that you wear. And then, you know, wading through snow like that, boot height, you know, obviously getting your clothing wet, changing at the stand location potentially, sealing up those clothes. Um, And I want to get into scent with you now, Dan, because I feel like... uh, Maybe we're gonna have an argument here, so let's uh, let's hear let's hear hear what you want to talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a,
0: a, a lot of it has to do with clothing too, but you mentioned multiple pairs of clothes. You mentioned washing, uh, you know, washing clothes multiple times or almost at the end of every day to yeah. try to be scent free. I hunted. I went on my Western trip. I washed it when I got back, and then I hunted for a week not washing my clothes, wearing the same stuff, went three days, took a, a break, and I washed, I washed a, a pair of pants, and then uh, yeah, I washed my base layers too, and then hunted another, you know, four or five days. And so for me, I used to be the guy who, I'm not joking, I would – I I took scent elimination to the extreme. I was washing my clothes. I was putting them in totes. I was trying to seal everything out, and I just got sick of doing it. And and I said, I'm going to play the wind, and that's all I care about now is playing the wind. And so my scent routine now, my scent elimination routine is ozone. I don't wash my clothes. I I wear my clothes, you know, to the gas station and all that stuff. Before every hunt, I will run my clothes, before I get dressed, in like a 15-minute, they call it a a dry wash bag. I run the ozone in this dry wash bag, and this, this ozone, O3, it attacks odor, kills odor, and kills bacteria. And that's what I do before every hunt, is just... Throw the machine on, in, put you know on the clothes, cycle it for about fifteen minutes, get dressed, go hunt, and I I and as far as scent, I I'm a believer that access routes are the most important thing when it comes to finding a hunting location, and so any type of like plus you can you can be as scent free as humanly possible, your clothes. Can be as scent-free as humanly possible, but the kicker is what comes out of your mouth. Did you eat a big, fat, greasy cheeseburger? Maybe you brush your teeth, but if you're burping, that emits more scent than your clothes combined. Absolutely. And, and so I, I've just given up on all of that stuff. I run my ozone machine, and and I go I go hunt. I go play the wind.
1: So everything, Dan, I think that's your routine, and I think that's, yep. that's a good example of what people can do that may not want to go through the insaneness that you once went through. I'm going to yep. add a little bit to your routine. I want you to think about this. Yep. So you, you talked about your, your odor coming from your mouth, right? The biggest orifice or the, the largest orifice is going to exert, you know, scent molecules. Baking soda and water. Guys, it's mm. so simple. Just bring a bottle with you with baking soda and water and sip on that for a little bit. Don't swallow it. Just use his mouthwash and every hour put a little in your mouth. Don't bring coffee in the stand. I don't eat. I try to starve. Um, that also does other things to your body. So you have to get used to, you know, um, uh, kind of binging or not binging on food for that, that example. But yeah. baking soda and water. That's it. That's the secret. And that, yeah. helps, that helps mitigate some of the, the molecules that are going to come out of your mouth. It's the same thing I use when I clean my boots baking soda and water. And, um, you know, so you can do really simple things that are inexpensive, that'll get you a lot further, you know, down the road. And I know some people cover their, their face and body and, and, activated charcoal, right. I've seen a lot of that kind of stuff. I stay away from that. I don't think that's necessarily the greatest thing. I I know people use zeolite and a few other uh, chemicals. I think that doesn't make sense either. So just be cautious of what you put on your skin and your body and be consider of you know kind of what you're using and, and don't indulge in too much stuff. The flip side of it is I see people running ozone and box blinds. Not a good at not, not good at all. In fact, it's a pretty unhealthy situation to be in. It's not good to have that much uh, ozone to be breathing that much ozone. I see some big name guys do that, and I wish they they would uh, think a little bit more about you know the output. And those things are not regulated. They're not health or environmentally controlled. So there's, a, there's some things to think about there as well, and that's just, that's just my opinion on stuff without doing yeah. the science work behind it. Um, okay.
0: You want to you hear something crazy? Shoot. All right. In 2006, I went to the Iowa Deer Classic, and that, that was back before everybody had a smartphone. And so everybody used to bring these little picture books with them, and they would have all of the deer that they've killed – throughout decades in these books and and if you ever got in a conversation with people you would just switch them right like I would grab yours you would grab mine and we'd flip through them and it'd be all it'd be this guy's history almost like a journal <laughs> but of all his pictures cool and so and so one time I was talking with this guy and the, the topic of scent elimination that back then I didn't have a picture book to, to pass around to people and so this guy, we started talking about scent, and he goes, do you know why, and, and he, I don't know if this guy, he was an old-timer, and he goes, do you know why deer run from coyotes? And it's because they can smell that they eat meat. They're, they're, they they're can smell that they're a predator, so they, they are in fear of that. And he goes, I stop eating meat 30 days before the season starts, and I don't eat meat anymore and it clears out my body, and I feel like I give out a different scent that is less threatening to deer. And I'm like, so at the time I thought he was crazy. But then I'm just like, that kind of makes sense to where your body is emitting a different type of scent because all you're doing is eating vegetables or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. He's like, I eat ultra clean. And then uh, once I shoot my buck, then I go back to eating meat again. And and I was like, nowadays I think about that and I'm just like, I bet you if you did some research, there's there's some kind of science behind that.
1: There, there is. And um, so with my clients, I go through the, this is so funny, Dan, you bring this up. So not that I had a similar conversation with somebody, but I did research on that and I changed my diet probably 10 <laughs> years ago. However, I just cheated recently. so. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so I don't. I don't eat meat. Um, I will eat some instances. I'll eat chicken, but I typically don't eat meat. But boy, I tell you, I had to go down and get a, a sub from one of my favorite sub places because I was just dying the other day. I've been hunting so much. I'm like, I got. I'm craving. I'm right. craving a sub. So I went there and guess what? Going off that diet. The amount of farting that next day was through the roof. Right, your body is so reactive. So once you get once you um, once you get on the routine of having a lot of like vegetables, and, and you know we're designed physically, we're designed to consume much more uh, vegetables than we probably realize. But adding into that, like a lower portion of meat content, and then using that as kind of your main diet dietary needs throughout the years is a good tactic and then switching you know strictly to vegetables and it's uh you know i do a lot of shakes and uh i have a certain routine that i go through so i I regulate my body i'm trying to minimize as much output of farting and burping Mm -hmm. and bad mouths and you know everything else bad mouth scent and everything you 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 can deal with so i think there's there's things you can do and i don't think that old timer was wrong i think some of those old folks kind of understood same thing urinating scrapes if you think about the of some of the scent that comes off her body and the concentration of it in her urine its going to be a lot higher and, and watch if you have a a, a good line a scrape line watch the coyotes follow that line and piss in that scrape happens more yep. frequently than not and if you don't think that's a disturbing function in the landscape you're completely wrong i paid so much attention to the, the interaction of those two there's there's a lot in the social biology piece of it we don't pay as much attention to that's meaningful on how deer use the landscape and what, what interfering or uh, factors go into alarming deer. And it's being conscious of that. Like, I see a lot of guys go to the bathroom and scrapes, and I think, man, I wonder what they ate the day before. Because that's, that's probably meaningful, and what's, what's the compounds that are part of yeah. their, their urine. So Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Ch- gas station chili dog. Was that your go-to during the run? <laughs> no, oh no, dude! I would be miserable if I ate, <laughs> ate that. I, I try to. I personally try to eat. I I don't eat breakfast uh, because, and I don't. I try not to drink any caffeine because with caffeine comes jitters. Mm. It comes like, uh, you know, bowel movements, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and I I just don't. I don't want to have to deal with that. Yeah. Until after I'm done hunting for the day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Are your kid. Are your kids old enough to hunt? Any of your kids? They're younger, right?
0: Uh. Yeah. My oldest is ten, and my my oldest boy is eight, and my youngest boy six. So they're right in the age to where I'm starting to bring them along. Uh, my daughter had her first turkey season. Okay. Uh, she's not old enough to do any type of, um, gun hunting yet. I just, I think it's, I might, I might actually go buy her a 410 for, for turkey season this year. Awesome. Uh, But, and then maybe try to find a way to use it for both turkeys and uh, whitetails. Sure. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm in the starting stages of it
1: that's a good experience i mean i'm at the point where my son's hunting so you know some of these things of clothing and and uh just maintenance and thinking through you know i i am i'm of the point now where my success uh from the hunting standpoint is is not of the same importance right uh the experience of that he's having and uh we've had some tremendous hunts this kid has been so spoiled and spoiled in like a tough hunting area so let's let's be consider that but like I want him to experience some of the things, but also have the struggles. And at the same point, like, I think, you know, I, I hope the the weather's nasty for opening day. I hope there's some nastiness in it. So he can, yeah. he can kind of experience like the pain because there's yep. a pain and pleasure thing that, that happens in this world. And I think as long as we expose our kids to enough of that, I think the outcome is going to be such where they appreciate the, uh, the the land of plenty When when things are good. It's good. When things are tough, we got to get smarter. And that's, that's where I want to kind of push him, you know, to think a little bit differently than, than I probably was taught. You know, I, I might've banged my head against the wall too many times and, and wasn't as strategic. So uh, right. I, I'm all about, you know, kids getting into this thing and, and learning from us. And I'm really happy for your big buck, man. I, I, I don't, I don't care what it's scored. It's a, it's a ginormous deer, um, incredible deer, man. It's, it's great to hear that you had success this season and you grinded you. It and you you were smart and, it sounded like you, the hunt came together for you. So I think there's probably a sigh of relief right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, this season was definitely a season of the highs and lows, right? So when I, I, I hit a buck really high in the meat in in his shoulder, mm-hmm. passed pass through him and there was no deer at the end of the blood trail. It just kind of <laughs> disappeared into nothing. And, and sure enough, uh, I got him on trail camera a couple of days after and he looked healthy and, I bet you he's right now breeding a doe, living his best life, and so.
1: Yep.
0: Uh, I was at the all-time low at that point, but then, like I said, I. I took like a three-day break, got back in, got back in the stand, uh, and started playing the game again, and and last night it paid off. So I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty happy with the results.
1: Great. And for anybody who's listening to this podcast, that type of resiliency in, the, in those scenarios is critical at this time of year or through the rest of the season. Don't give up. Keep grinding. Keep listening to this podcast. I appreciate everybody listening to it. Dan, thanks for being on the podcast today. It was great talking Gary with you. I learned quite a bit, so we'll talk again soon.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. And thank you for uh, the awesome content that you put out, man. All
1: right, brother. Talk to you soon. See ya.
0: Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.